It's time for us to do something. Let's talk about the reality-detached pathology which plagues the radical left. I and many others use the term leftist to distinguish it from lefties, to describe the extremists who have little regard for the real world, science or even humanity. Their highest good is control, regardless of who gets hurt, what damage is done, or what economic carnage is left in the trail of their failed revolutions. They have no desire to improve anything, only to control everything. Bigger government is always good, and there is no such thing as too big in their benighted vision of society. Thus, generational welfare dependency, which creates families dependent on government instead of fathers, and with fatherlessness fosters resultant higher rates of teen pregnancy, substance abuse, crime, incarceration, high school dropouts, career failure, marriage failure, and more. Doesn't matter to them because it can't enter their mind that government was part of the problem and not the solution after all. They dare not consider reducing government handouts because that is the only way they can manipulate undecided voters to support their lust for power. More and more spending, more and more social problems, more and more government to solve the problems more government created or exacerbated. And so it is with the climate cult. No matter how badly the environment must be raped to construct wind or solar energy resources, the goal was never environmental net benefit, but control. They want to control the policy. To what end matters not as long as it is theirs. They demand control of the debate. And science has nothing to do with it if the science does not conform to their preferred policy. And again with human rights. They demand science dictate policies to preserve life from the Wuhan flu, but refuse transparency of the science, lest some equally or better qualified experts expose, expose flawed modelling, invalid assumptions, misdirected attention to irrelevant statistics, and scant consideration for the public health disasters created by singular fixation on eliminating yet another seasonal virus, always, no matter the greater cost. Meanwhile, the same governments are obsessed with killing living humans and calling it healthcare, despite the science and objective medical ethics internationally agreed to in the 1940s. They promote suicide prevention and then promote laws saying how dignified and compassionate it is to help someone kill themselves. In Victoria, this year, an elderly lady diagnosed with cancer, lonely from prolonged lockdown isolation and in zero pain, availed herself of the radical left's suicide promotion liberalisation. She died from an acutely toxic case of radical leftist government. Leftists don't want to make things better they just want to control your life and liberty. They undefined marriage because they didn't control it, but wanted to. With that radical rewriting of the dictionary, they ushered in an Orwellian era two-fifths of Aussies saw coming when they voted no. Leftists fall over themselves and their self-contradicting search for the ultimate victims. 
once upon a time, feminism was about equality of the sexes. And then the leftists got their grubby little hands on it. Success in making it illegal to pay women less for identical work for, or disenfranchise women from politics wasn't enough. Because complete solutions to old problems are simply an inconvenient obstacle to the streams of taxpayers' money financing the grievance industry. But leftists have abandoned women. Women are now just as bad as men because they're not pathologically confused about their gender. Women are no longer deserving of the faux compassion the radical left once offered them. Now women who object to men in dresses, who simply say they feel like a woman and thus demand entry into women's toilets and change rooms at sporting facilities, are the enemy. It is they who have a pathological condition known as a phobia. Another word the radical left has undefined and manipulated to the point of absolute meaninglessness. Radical leftist Stephen King once tweeted, I believe trans women are women. I do not believe that hate speech and shaming speech are acceptable. Those things are the enemy of rational discourse. Treat even those with whom you disagree with the dignity you expect yourself. Well, that last part I agree with. But what's actually true is that blatantly anti-science lies are the enemy of rational discourse. Personally, I expect people who love me to tell me the truth, for better or for worse. That's the dignity I expect. Those who hate me would just tell me what I want to hear for fear of offending me, and that would be embarrassing. Make no mistake from the conviction of my message that I lack any compassion for gender-confused people. I wish them the best of physical and mental health. Gender dysphoria needs compassionate treatment of the whole person, not patronising platitudes. Leftist faux compassion has multiplied the suffering to the point of being a culturally constructed epidemic, according to the nation's leading paediatricians. This week, the mayor of Perth said the entirely uncontroversial truth that men have a penis and women have a vagina, and you don't get to swap. It's biology, it's science, it's immutable fact. Unless you're a leftist. Now let's have a look at uh, the proceeds of how that went down in the media. Now, the world's first LGBTQ plus boxing tournament is set to be staged in Sydney in 2023 after the nation's governing body threw its support behind the proposal. There's a woman in the paper today, a model of some description, who's having a child, and she said, they asked her, is she having a boy or a girl? And she said, I won't know that until the child turns 18. Right. And then they can identify themselves as a boy but, or a girl. But, Steve, I... How, I, how do you get through mm, until you're 18 by doing that? Yeah. But if the child's got an old fella, that's yeah. going to make it a little difficult if uh, that, that, that person's trying to get into the ladies' cubicles and the like. I mean, at school, I don't know that they're going to be... Well, that's happy. the new era, Dazzle. Get into it. It's the new era. If I subscribe to being a girl, I'm a girl. No, you don't. No. No. Wrong. Wrong. No, no. If you've got you're a penis... male... Exactly. Or you're female. If you've got a penis, mate, you're a bloke. If you've got a vagina, you're a woman. Not necessarily. <laughs> game over. No, not, not game oh, over. Well, mate, you want to go softy, lefty... I'm not going softy or lefty. Nambi, and vagina. I am just saying what others 
Well, Softy Lefty is exactly what it was. Those comments on radio got the new mayor of Perth in massive trouble. And to the great disappointment of conservatives everywhere, he's walked back the statements and apologised for telling the truth. Sadly, he's caved like a coward and compromised. He's compromised the truth to shield himself and his now entirely meaningless political career. From the ferocity of the leftist fascists who will destroy your life if you refuse to conform to their agenda. Women have women's sport because they aren't as good as men at it, generally. If they were, they wouldn't need a separate competition. They'd simply qualify to play on the various men's teams. It takes conservatives with real compassion for the real-world impacts of public policy to protect women both from being undefined and from the dangers of the appropriation of their biological uniqueness by confused men. I've got another clip here that I'm going to show you. asked for advice on whether sports should allow males to play women's competitions, why wasn't their first question, is that fair for female competitors? Is that fair for women? After all, it's no secret that males enjoy significant physical advantages over women and girls. 10,000 males have run faster than the current Olympic female 100 metre champion. Male weightlifters 10, in the 69 kilo category outlift women in the 108 kilo category. Men hit a golf ball much further and serve a tennis ball much faster. In contact sports, men on average have much greater mass, power and speed, which cause collisions with greater force and impact. That's why, when looking at the issue of transgender inclusion, World Rugby turned to the science. They found that it is neither safe nor fair for biological males to play women's rugby. Why then, when facing the same considerations, did Sport Australia produce a document which, by their own admission, didn't even attempt to assess scientifically whether it's safe and fair for males to play women's sport? Why did Australia's peak sporting agency avoid answering these questions and instead delegate the task of providing advice on who should play women's sport to the Human Rights Commission? Why do the guidelines, instead of providing accurate advice on the law, actually mislead sporting clubs and give them the impression they'll be sued for discrimination if they refuse a male from competing in a women's competition? Expert legal advice provided to me by a prominent QC describes how Sport Australia's guidelines misrepresent the Sex Discrimination Act, which very specifically provides for female-only sport. Over the last 12 months, I've been attempting to find out why Sport Australia didn't do the obvious and affirm what common sense, science and the law all stipulate, that women are entitled to their own sports. Myself and women right across the country who have been trying to get answers have been stonewalled and provided with spin and contradiction rather than facts. Here's what we do know. Sport Australia refuses outright to say who was consulted on the guidelines or which groups requested their development. Lobby groups fighting for biological males to be able to play women's sport were engaged to advise on the guidelines, while women's groups were not invited to participate. Sport Australia delegated the writing of the guidelines to the Human Rights Commission without providing any brief to consider scientific research relevant to safety and fairness in women's sport. 
After I continued to ask questions, Sport Australia conceded their guidelines were never intended to be a scientific document. Despite admitting they never looked at the science, the guidelines somehow conclude that there is limited science available, even though World Rugby cite 49 scientific reports in their analysis. Sport Australia has conceded World Rugby's findings of a potential 30% increase in head injury risk to women when playing against trans women may be correct, but refuse to reconsider their own guidelines in light of these findings. They seem to suggest we need to see some more women getting head injuries before they reconsider their actions. It's a shame. Rugby Australia ignored World Rugby's findings when they recently published their own transgender guidelines allowing biological males to play full contact rugby against women. Rugby Australia's guidelines acknowledge they draw heavily on Sport Australia's science-free guidelines. We also know that diversity and inclusion staff at both Sport Australia and Rugby Australia are on the advisory board for Pride in Sport the lobby group, which claimed credit for Rugby Australia and other major Australian sports, recently releasing their own guidelines that promote the inclusion of men in women's sport. And we know that the interpretation of Commonwealth law and the guidelines, which Sport Australia has said is the sole purpose of the document, is misleading according to legal experts and fails to make clear that the vast majority of sports are entitled to limit their women's competitions to females. What we have, in short, is a set of guidelines impacting on women's sport that women weren't consulted about, that its creators admit are not based in science, and that legal experts say are predicated on an inaccurate interpretation of the law. It is simply unacceptable for Australia's taxpayer-funded peak sporting body to have conspired in secret with favoured lobby groups to undermine the integrity, safety and fairness of women's sport. Australians know that men and women are physically different. They know that this is why women's sport exists. And they know it is not fair and not safe for women to lose the right to their own sports on the basis of a murky, secretive, unscientific deal between bureaucrats and lobbyists. Okay, will be looking at. Well, the word, the world, has gone mad. How on earth is it not patently obvious to every person capable of breathing without thinking about it that letting biological men play contact sport with women is fundamentally unsafe? No matter how much surgery or makeup you have, you're a dude. Someone who has taken up the fight for truth, as we've just seen, and reality on behalf of sporting women and helping to keep women's sport safe and fair is Senator Claire Chandler from Tasmania. Claire, thank you so much for joining Pello Talk Live tonight. Thank you very much for having me. I've got uh, Jordan Peterson playing in the background, the beauties of live TV. And thank you very much for speaking out on behalf of common sense and trying to get uh, government guidelines for uh, the grassroots sporting clubs around Australia. To, to actually represent reality, both the science, biology and legal aspects that uh, we should be operating with full knowledge of. Look, I, I absolutely agree, um, particularly on that first point. I mean, what I have been fighting for is a common sense point of view that the majority of Australians share, which is that women's sport should be for biological women. And there are very genuine 
and real reasons why that's the case. I'm, in the speech of mine that you just played back, I, I talked about the fact that something like 10,000 more men can run uh, as fast over 100 metres as the fastest woman in the world. I mean, if that's we... That's an incredible um, statistic. It is an incredible statistic. And you, you think about it, if we didn't have um, men's and women's uh, sport at the Olympics, for example, that means that we would never see a woman competing in the 100 metres. I mean, we would never see a woman making an Olympic team in any country, I suspect, if 10,000 men can run faster than her. So there are um, real fairness risks here. But but um, one of the greater concerns, I think, particularly at the community level, is the safety concern as well. And this was what first sparked my issue in this entire, uh, in my interest rather in this entire issue was um, back when I first became a senator almost 18 months ago, um, shortly before I took my seat in the Senate, Sport Australia had issued these transgender inclusion guidelines and I received email after email from uh, parents, women across Australia who were all concerned about the impact that this was going to have, whether it was on their own personal ability to compete in women's sport or often in their, um, in their young daughter's ability to compete in, in her local um, sporting league as well. So this has been um, a, an issue that's been bubbling away for quite some time. Well, it is, and I'm not surprised you got lots of really, really great feedback from lots of people. I believe the majority of Australians are right-thinking, sensible people who want leadership in the real issues that are affecting Australians and against the the fight against reality which is being mounted by the left. Now also joining us tonight on the panel of experts are um, Bernard Gaynor. Welcome to Pello Talk Live, Bernie. G'day Dave and g'day Senator Chandler. It is an honour to be on with you tonight. Thanks Bernard, nice to meet you. And uh, also joining us is uh, Lyle Shelton here in the studio. Lyle, so great. Welcome. Thank you, Dave. Great to be with you and great to be with you too, Senator, and uh, with you also, Bernie. So, hang on, we do have us all there. Good, good. I was looking for four squares on the on this little screen, but um, we've, we've got four people that'll have to do for us. <laughs> uh, Senator Chandler, where did the wheels start falling off? When did uh, this peak sporting... Is it Sport Australia, the name of the organisation? Mm -hmm. Yes. So when did Sport Australia start pushing back, start falling over their words, um, start contradicting themselves? Uh, it, it's a bit of a, a funny one to untangle. Um, I first started asking questions of Sport Australia about the transgender inclusion guidelines back in February. Uh, and at that point in time, I, I just asked basic questions around, you know, who was consulted when the guidelines were being developed? Um, you know, what was the nature of the consultation? And they and the Australian Human Rights Commission, who they uh, worked with to develop the guidelines, uh, both said that the consultation was conducted on a confidential basis and they weren't going to tell me who who that was, um, which I thought was incredibly surprising, particularly when um, you have, uh, you know, like I said, women across the country, parents across the country contacting me saying, where have these guidelines come from? Why is Sport Australia 
doing this and it, it all just started to get um, progressively murkier from there. I mean, more recently at Estimates, um, both Sport Australia and the AHRC have very much um, focused their language on the fact that these guidelines were only really designed apparently, as I alluded to in my speech, to, as an interpretive um, legal document to assist sporting clubs know their uh, responsibilities and their duties under the Sex Discrimination Act. And yet the guidelines clearly set out that sporting clubs should be allowing people to compete in the sporting division of the sex, the, rather the gender they identify with, rather than their biological sex. And I just don't understand why the starting position, if that is the question that you want to answer, isn't will this be fair for the hundreds of thousands, most likely millions of Australian women who play sport in some form or another. So it's been a, a very uh, confusing process that Sport Australia and the AHRC have gone through. They're now sort of passing the buck and one saying that it was the other that led the consultation, which is all a little bit confusing. Um, but I will certainly continue to keep asking questions because, I mean, honestly, I think we are now at the point where it's clear that the science wasn't considered when the guidelines were first developed and they need to be rewritten. I, I should have said the other significant thing that happened in the middle of all this was a few months ago, uh, World Rugby, the, the world governing organisation for yes. rugby, decided to develop their own research. So they, um, when they were looking at the question of whether or not uh, trans or how to include transgender people in sport and what um, whether you know, trans women should be included in women's sport. They started from the scientific position and said, well, let's figure out whether or not it's fair. Let's figure out whether or not it's safe. And they came up with dozens of scientific reports um, and research that all says that it clearly is neither fair nor safe. So um, that was the, the other piece of research that dropped, I guess, um, during my advocacy on this issue. And uh, again, I, I put questions to Sport Australia and the AHRC at estimates around this, and they just don't want to recognise the truth in the research, which I'm sure for every fair-minded Australian is, is a pretty upsetting position for us to be in. Lyle, doesn't it just go against the whole nature of what people play sport for? There's rules, there's guidelines, you want a level playing field, you want to you want to be matched against people you know we've got age groups in in junior sports and we've got men's and but isn't it just the simple principle of sport that you're after fairness yeah absolutely um dave and and senator can i just say how much as a father of daughter and as an uncle of beautiful little nieces um how much i appreciate your advocacy on this and mm. dave you're exactly right um the whole idea of sport is that there are boundaries there's guidelines each sport has different rules uh, that's what makes it fun the fact that not anything goes happens uh, the fact that there's parameters and guidelines mm. and in the case of gender to make it fun and competitive we separate ourselves male and female so that women can enjoy sport in a way that they can um, mm. where they can't if there's blokes bashing them about yeah you know we've all played mixed netball and touch rugby and that sort of thing and that's all well and good but competitive sport where women want to compete they should be allowed to and the senator is quite right to be pointing this out and David I just make one point and um, this may come up further in the discussion but 
During the 2017 marriage plebiscite, we warned that this would happen. Mm -hmm. If you degender marriage, take away the gender requirement and the gender diversity out of marriage, that has implications for biology and family. And, and we said that this would lead to pressure to um, allow men who want to identify as women to be in women's change rooms. Uh, it was happening overseas already. It was a precursor to this. So everything yep. that the senator is fighting against was entirely predictable. We did predict it. And, and, and we were mm. told that by the same-sex marriage lobby that we were talking about red herrings and furfies. And I feel like a bear with a sore head because um, we're in a mess as a country. We can't even recognise whether we're Arthur or Martha, male or female. And um, that might be a little bit cute, but... Um, I just think about my nieces and my daughter and uh, all women in Australia who just want a fair go. It, it was highly predicted. It was always going to, to be this way and it was always said exactly as you, as you said. Uh, let's have a... I actually want to read the actual legislation that these sporting guidelines are meant to advise about. And as the you know, well-qualified legal advice that Senator Chandler has obtained confirms the guidelines from Sporting Australia are completely uh, misinforming the, the sporting clubs in Australia about the risks and liabilities of normal, reasonable discrimination. So the Section 42 of the Sex Discrimination Act 1984, uh, which is all about providing for female-only sport, these are the exact words. Nothing in Division 1 or 2 renders it unlawful to discriminate on the ground of sex, gender identity or intersex status by excluding persons from participation in any competitive sporting activity in which the strength, stamina or physique of competitors is relevant. Subsection 1 does not apply in relation to the exclusion of persons from participation in the coaching of persons engaged in any sporting activity, the umpiring or refereeing of any sporting activity, the administration of any sporting activity, any prescribed sporting activity, or sporting activities by children who have not yet attained the age of 12 years old. I don't know why that would be complicated. I know it's in legal legislation language, but Bernie, is that in the least bit ambiguous to you? Uh, it's not ambiguous, uh, Dave. Sorry, I was just looking at the Sex Discrimination Act because there's a, another section after that which has just been repealed, and I think it goes to part of the issue here. Uh, we have got completely mixed up ideas of gender, and the, the section that followed that related to the Commonwealth's ability to discriminate against women for combat duties. That section has now been uh, repealed, which means that the, the, well, we're talking about women being hurt by men who are pretending to be women on the sporting field. Well, the Commonwealth is saying that women should be competing against men on the battlefield at the same time. I mean, it's just completely mixed up. And we talk about science. Um, I don't think there is really any science at all behind this entire debate. You, you can't have this debate unless you throw common sense out the window entirely. It, it's just a, a ridiculous debate. And I think that's one of the reasons why Australians are so, I think, hesitant to speak about this. It's not just the fact that you could end up 
in front of a Tasmanian uh, anti-discrimination commissioner like uh, Senator Chandler has or like Lyle and myself have, it's because most Australians find this whole topic so ridiculous. They feel almost that if they even enter into it, somehow they're giving credence to stupidity. Um, yeah, so there's. I, I just wanted to put that out there. It's a good point. It's a uh, it's a good point, well made. It does obviously, I guess, create some extra questions about uh, about. Uh, you know the defence ability. Is that a little bit too much political correctness again? Um, that's probably a, a slightly different topic. Um, yeah, it's about, a different topic. Uh, I know about the that. But um, Senator Chandler, do you want to have a brief comment on that? I think the other interesting thing to note with the Sex Discrimination Act, um, and particularly with the sport exemption, is. Um, before the um, Labor-Green government of the early noughties, the Sex Discrimination Act only related to, funnily enough, discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, so the sport exemption as it once existed effectively said you are allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex for sporting competitions where strength, stamina and physique are relevant. In the dying days of the Labor-Green government in mid-2013, the words gender and gender identity were inserted into the Sex Discrimination Act, basically wherever it also said sex, which is where the waters got significantly muddier um, and, you know, a situation that's given rise to the need to have these guidelines, it would appear. Mm. But, I mean, in that situation where sex, gender and gender identity are all attributes that are listed in the sport exemption. I don't think there's anything in that exemption that says that you can't discriminate on the basis of sex for the purpose of sport, um, as long as strength, stamina and physique are relevant. And honestly, I'm struggling to think of a sport where strength, stamina and physique aren't relevant and where males wouldn't, by virtue of nature and biology, have a significant advantage over women. So um, as I referred to in my speech, I mean, I, I... clearly think that the Sex Discrimination Act says something contrary to what um, Sport Australia and the Australian Human Rights Commission have read in uh, when they've developed these guidelines. Can, can I just ask, um, Senator, just you mentioned sort of the origin of these guidelines coming from um, Sport Australia and the Australian Human Rights Commission. I understand that uh, they were the architect of this. Um, I first came aware of it when the sports minister, Richard Colbeck, was reported in The Australian as having launched them. Um, Can you just clear up this issue? Are are these the Morrison government's guidelines or are they quite independent? And and if they're not the government's, why can't the government just say to Sport Australia, uh, we're not going to go down this path? We're going to believe in biology and science and we're going to allow women to you know enjoy their sport uh, without uh, this sort of confusion and, and risk element being brought into it good question yeah and it's a, a bit of a um a tricky one for me in that like i i said when i was um talking about the history of this issue i started as a senator just after these guidelines were uh introduced so um i'm not entirely sure of the background that came around to uh to creating them but um 
as as you've shown, I've been pretty vocal on these issues for um, the last 12 or so months, and I've certainly been having conversations with many colleagues about my concerns around these guidelines and, um, you know, trying to figure out what um, what can be done so that we, we strike a more sensible balance. But like I say, I think the onus really is on Sport Australia at this point in time where they've publicly said that they didn't look at all of the science, that wasn't what the process was, um, that they they and or the AHRC, depending on who you're talking to, um, initiated was meant to be about. So I think they need to go back to the drawing board. Can the government withdraw funding from Sport Australia if they don't fix this situation so that women can enjoy their sport again without uh, this sort of risk and liability? It is a huge liability. Look, I think that that would be um, a conversation for further down the track. My uh, absolute priority at the moment is making sure that these guidelines get rewritten um, as the first port mm -hmm. of call so that it doesn't have to get to that point. But, I mean, it, it does pose an interesting question, particularly thinking about how much money all levels of government, state, federal and local, have invested in women's sporting facilities um, across the country so that we could get more women involved in sports, so that women would feel welcome joining a sporting club and having their own facilities, facilities to use and having, um, you know, their own bathrooms to change in and the like. So why have we done that on the one hand, which I think is a perfectly um, admirable thing to do, and on the other we have the peak sporting body in this country saying oh well you know at the same time if a bloke wants to come and play in the women's sporting team then they're allowed to it's a, a little confusing if a woman is harmed in sport while, while this is being cleared up who's liable um is is the is sport australia the the sporting club is, is it possible there could be an action against the federal government I think it would fundamentally depend on um, where that injury might occur, whether or not it was on the professional um, sporting field or on a community sporting field, So, um, and, and, you know, where it happened and that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, look, I, I don't think that it would be the case that the federal government would be liable, but, um, like I say, Sport Australia needs to take the lead here. Sport Australia needs to set the standard. Is uh, Sport Australia actually... A government body or is it a private independent peak body association uh it would be uh, a, a government um entity or a um, standalone commission I, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what the legal structure it is but they appear before us at estimates which gives me the um very privileged opportunity to be able to ask them the hard questions yeah good and thank you for the hard questions you are asking <laughs> uh, can i ask a question Dave of Senator Chandler on this. Uh, Senator, how likely do you think Sports Australia might be willing to change uh, its current approach given that if they go to what seems like common sense, they might face anti-discrimination complaints in various anti-discrimination uh, bodies around the nation? That is a very interesting question and I hadn't necessarily um, thought about it through that uh, particular lens. I've, I've often thought to myself, why, why won't Sport Australia just change the guidelines? But I hadn't necessarily considered um, the possibility that they're worried about getting hauled before an anti-discrimination uh, tribunal. I won't put thoughts into their head in that regard, but... Um, <laughs> 
I mean, and this uh, segues nicely into the um, next uh, chapter in this story, at least what it was for me um, personally, yeah. was, um, you know, if, if you are seen to be speaking up about this issue and trying to engage in um, a, a reasonable and polite debate around whether or not women should be um, subjected to having biological men playing their sporting competitions, then then everyone apparently does run the risk that you will get hauled before your local anti-discrimination tribunal because that's what happened to me. Indeed it did. Now, what was the first notice you had that the uh, Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Tribunal had you in their crosshairs, that uh, there was a case being made that they were demanding you answer to? Yeah, it was um, it, it was quite quite um, amusing how it happened. Really, I got a phone call at the end of a sitting wake up in Canberra. It must have been around the start of September, and that was um, from my office down in in Richmond in Tasmania. And they said, "Oh, um, Equal Opportunity Tasmania has just called the office down here. They need you to call them back. They've got something to talk to you about." And Right then, um, I had a pretty good idea what that conversation <laughs> was going to be, um, but uh, I, I picked up the sorts. phone to them and, and they sent through a um, sent through a letter with the information about the complaint that had been made against me that they had accepted for investigation. And the funny thing was, as soon as they said the name of the um, of the complainant, I, I recognised it immediately because. It was he sent me a, a piece of correspondence to my office via email, and it was one of the only negative, um, the, the only negative feedback I'd received about my advocacy on this issue. So I thought, oh yes, of course, it's this guy. And for background, um, what had happened was I had um, written a piece in the Mercury newspaper, which is the local uh, newspaper in southern Tasmania, about ironically enough, um, the importance of free speech and, and referenced in that op-ed the importance of free speech, particularly as it related to this debate around um, women's sports and women's sex-based rights. And this constituent had emailed me and said, um, and, you know, I, I could I could gather from the correspondence that he didn't agree with me on this point, but asked me to clarify my views. Um, I provided a very polite response back to him um, saying something along the lines of that I did understand the difference between sex and gender. That's why I said in my op-ed in the Mercury newspaper that women's sports, women's facilities and women's bathrooms are designed for biological women and should remain so. Uh, and I think that was the um, offending language, so to speak, um, under Section 17 of Tasmania's Anti-Discrimination Act, which, uh, as I'm sure your viewers would be aware, is one of the most restrictive pieces of legislation in this country when it comes to free speech. There is a very long list of attributes upon which you are not able to say something that might offend, humiliate uh, or insult somebody. So I uh, found out at the end of the sitting week and then, unfortunately for me, uh, I came home to Tassie and went into two weeks of quarantine at home. So it was um, not the most pleasant two weeks I've had stuck at home, not able to go outside and get any fresh air and perspective and just thinking about this um, this process that had been uh, kicked off against me. But from there, it just got progressively more and more um, ridiculous. I was 
uh, summons to attend conciliation, which um, was due to happen at the start of October when I asked if I could bring a lawyer to that conciliation hearing, I was refused. Obviously, I engaged a lawyer regardless because when these things happen, you um, you, you lawyer up, you, you try and mm-hmm. find the right person to give you the right advice. Um, and then not long before the conciliation started, uh, Equal Opportunity has sent me a confidentiality agreement to sign and I thought, nope, there is no way I'm mm-hmm. signing that. I have advocated on this issue on the basis that we need to have this debate openly. And for me, the whole idea of going into conciliation with this person who'd complained about me and not being able to talk about it flew in the face of that. So I refused to sign. Within 24 hours, the conciliation was cancelled and within another 24 hours of that, I found out not by Equal Opportunity Tasmania, but by the Mercury newspaper that the complaint had been withdrawn because the Mercury had received uh, a media release from the complainant and called up my office asking for comment. So... That is the whole sorry story um, summarised in just a few minutes. But the really concerning thing about the experience I had is not that it happened to me, but quite frankly, that it could happen to anybody. I mean, I'm very fortunate in that I am a senator for Tasmania. I have access to Mm. parliamentary privilege. I was able, the day that I received the complaint, to go into the Senate a couple of hours later and make a speech and put the entire thing on public record, which, you know, most um, Australians would not have been able to do. And I had a profile that I was able to use to keep talking about the issue publicly in the meantime because... As I um, think I said on the day that I received the complaint, I wasn't going to be silenced. But not every Australian has access to um, those privileges. And I think most Australians would find themselves in the situation that I was in, where you've been served with um, some sort of legal correspondence saying that you have a case to answer for and then being refused um, representation by your lawyer. The automatic reaction is, well, shut up and stop talking about it. And that is has such a chilling effect on free speech mm. in this country, particularly around that issue, and it, it just disturbs it's, me greatly that it's it, this is what it's come to. Yeah. Look, I, there's so many things that are occurring to me, right? One, you're not allowed legal representation. You're you know, bullied into signing a confidentiality agreement so you can't even do a fundraiser and, and get whatever help you might uh, need to get. It's, this is such a star chamber, backward devolution mm-hmm. of of our justice system it, it beggars belief that this kangaroo court is continued to operate like this persecuting australians and depriving them of of natural justice in our nation but one thing that stands out to me is that wouldn't it be fantastic if people like you lyle and you bernie actually could get this on the public record and had countless amounts of politicians, senators, uh, members of lower houses who would stand up and put this on the public record and and actually say every time this happens, until we just get sick of hearing it and change the laws and change the legal environment in Australia so persecuting free speech no longer has a legal strategic advantage, wouldn't it be great if there was an endless stream of politicians like Senator Chandler who were willing to stand up and put it on the record for the sake of everyone in their in their constituency. Yeah, well, Dave, on, on, on that point, um, I couldn't help smiling 
uh, Claire, when you said that this could happen to anybody, and I noticed that three out of the four people on this panel have had anti-discrimination complaints in various forms. I've had 37 since 2014 from one serial activist who's said that he's doing it to try and bankrupt me. Um, I'm really interested to find out what the conservative coalition or liberal state governments in Tasmania thought about the fact that one of their uh, party senators from the state had been dragged before uh, this tribunal and what your federal colleagues thought about this. I mean, surely we, we, we need action taken on these anti-discrimination bodies. I, I think they should be bulldozed. Um, but I, and I think far too many conservative politicians have just assumed that it doesn't happen to politicians. It only happens to bigots, you know, the plebs. They're the ones that have to deal with it. Um, but when a senator gets dragged before a tribunal, uh, what was the reaction? Oh, look, um, you only have to look at some of the comments that colleagues of mine like um, Senator James Patterson made publicly uh, to know that there is um, good support with it within the coalition mm. for, um, for what I said and my plight. And indeed, our Prime Minister uh, was on uh, 2GB radio uh, not long after the complaint was withdrawn, describing my points of view as common sense, which I found uh, personally heartening and very heartening for the cause as well. But I mean, at least in my own home state of Tassie, uh, attempts were made to change the Anti-Discrimination Act uh, a few years ago in the lead up to the same-sex marriage plebiscite. Um, those changes uh, were not approved by the upper house at the time. And, and this goes back to the reason why I think a lot of attempts to change anti-discrimination legislation are failing. And that is because um, some of our uh, parliaments uh, are controlled by the left. And in, in Tasmania, um, the upper house is controlled by left independence. And of course, in the Senate federally, we have to contend with a crossbench as well. Um, and, and the left aren't more than happy to continue to shut down debate around these around mm. these issues. So um, until the, the left, are, um, particularly on the, the issue of women's sport, which have absolutely vacated, um, willing to accept just how chilling the effect that these, um, these anti-discrimination acts or these pieces of legislation have on free speech, then um, there is only so far that we're going to be able to get. I mean, you... you heard it uh, slightly in the background of the uh, video that you played of my recent speech at the start of one of my um, Labor colleagues on the other side of the chamber shouting me down. I've been labelled transphobic um, by Labor senators before for asking Not questions and estimates or, no, or, or making contributions in, in the Senate chamber. And I don't think there's anything transphobic about what I've said, what I'm advocating for is for women's sport to be for biological women. I don't think there's anything transphobic about that. But this is the rhetoric that the left uses. It, it is rhetoric and it's it's purely a, a cheap debate strategy designed to sling mud instead of engage with the substance of the argument. Um, and it's ignorant, it's dishonest, and anybody who repeats it is uh, intellectual coward. Claire, can I just jump in there on this issue of the difficulty about getting law reform, as Bernie's um, pointed out, and, and you've mentioned it's because the left seem to control certainly the upper house in Tasmania. I, I take that point. Certainly it's difficult in the federal parliament to get uh, change through the Senate because of the dynamics there, although I think with the crossbench 
common sense changes to allow free speech in these areas should be able to get through. But I just note that during the marriage plebiscite, or just after the plebiscite, when the legislation went through the parliament in December 2017 to give effect to the vote that the people had made, and, and I think, you know, had made a decision based on false information. We said that degendering marriage would lead to a lot of these sort of problems. We were told that was not true. Of course, it is true, was true, is playing out right now. And so the Coalition for Marriage, of which I was a part, put up very detailed amendments to the Marriage Act to facilitate free speech. Uh, and unfortunately, it wasn't just the left that voted down those amendments for free speech. Um, several, the majority of the uh, then Turnbull cabinet voted against those free speech amendments. And so I guess my hope is that now that we are seeing the consequences play out that we said would play out, that I hope there's a change in the Liberal and National Party party rooms that realise just the seriousness of this, the magnitude of the change that was made in 2017 based on incorrect and false information by the Yes campaign, that perhaps these issues, you know, we, we may not be able to put marriage back together, but surely we can draw a line in the sand of the radical LGBTIQA plus political agenda, which I separate from individual gay people who are, most of them are very generous and decent people. But the political agenda that goes behind this is what's driving the sort of problems that we are having now. And uh, I just wonder if there's a greater awareness in the coalition party room that um, a line does need to be drawn in the sand if we are gonna preserve free speech and common sense in this nation. Oh, look, I certainly wouldn't speak um, on behalf of all of my colleagues because I have a number of colleagues that uh, do all have very strong feelings about, about free speech, but there um, is, as we alluded to earlier, I guess something um, perhaps a bit focusing that happens when it is one of your own that is that is dragged mm. through one of these processes as I was. So w whether or not that has changed any attitudes, um, I'm not sure. But th the other really interesting thing about um, particularly this women's sport issue is that, and you know, we're, we're talking about what happens on the left and what happens on the right. Um, I have been contacted by so many Australians who say, I usually vote Labor or I usually vote Green, um, but on this issue, you, a Conservative or a Liberal, are the only politician standing up for this issue and it, it's something that I'm willing to change my vote over. So okay. um, I, I think the yeah. erosion of biological sex-based rights is something that transcends the political spectrum. I. Uh, I'm working with a theory that there is no centre position in politics. That admittedly, there's a whole bunch of undecided voters, uh, but those are people who are looking for leadership. They're not people who necessarily uh, believe a little bit of the left and a, a little bit of the right. They're actually looking for someone to prosecute a good argument, bring the facts, evidence, data, and logic, and make a case for truth and ethics and right thinking in society. And I'd love to see more conservatives like you in our federal and state parliaments who are just willing to say, boys are boys, girls and girls, this isn't rocket science complicated. 
uh, any science that offers some other wacky theory is junk science. It doesn't deserve that label at, at all. Uh, and the science, the word science isn't an argument in itself. You can't just say the science says when common sense uh, is, is explaining reality to us in perfectly loud language that every little boy and girl, including that famous scene from Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger, this is not complicated stuff. And the radical leftists trying to just have zero relationship with reality whatsoever, and, and that's hopefully the political uh, landscape in, in which conservatives can stand up tall and get those people to change their votes who have been deluded and beguiled by offers of pork barreling and emotionally manipulative language like inclusion and tolerance, uh, which ends up in these kind of situations, which are potentially harmful and certainly unfair to, to women um, and erasing their identity altogether. And CNN using language recently to talk about women, the language was people with a cervix. Like that was actually published language. It was just ridiculous. Lyle, you've got some um, bunch of stuff here. Uh, well, well, look, while how we're do we segue to that, I'm not sure I don't what know. you've got. Well, while we're in a philosophical mood, um, I've been reading about Alexander Solzhenitsyn this morning, um, Eric Metaxas' chapter in his brilliant book, Seven More Men. And uh, he gave his famous Harvard lecture in 1978 Solzhenitsyn, for those who don't know, was the famous Soviet dissident, spent eight years in a gulag for writing letters critical of Stalin. And uh, finally he got expelled from the Soviet Union after exposing the horrors of the gulag. But then he, he could see that Western society uh, was also falling apart. And uh, it plays into the debate that we're having now because Solzhenitsyn noted in 1978 at his Harvard lecture that um, the West was... Um, heading in a direction where it was unravelling, he said we'd lost courage in our society and um, we weren't able to stand up for our values. And he said the loss of courage um, was always an indicator in ancient times that we were close to the beginning of the end. And uh, I see a new senator, someone who has had rare courage to stand up, and I've been involved in this debate for more than 10 years and seen the demonisation that comes to anyone who dares to speak against this political agenda. But the courage is rare. And um, the other point that Solzhenitsyn made was that part of the problem in the West is that we've been so fixated with individual rights that um, these individual rights have reached such extremes to make society defenceless against certain individuals. Whether, and this is where I guess identity politics comes. This is 1978 before the term identity politics had even come along. So here we are talking about transgender identity, gender identity and legislation, etc. And we put these individual rights on such a pedestal that um, we don't have the ability to defend uh, human rights at all for everyone anymore. And we've lost the will and the courage to defend them. Sorry, that's a bit long and philosophical, but um, I just happened to be reading this this morning and I think Solzhenitsyn was a prophet as to where we are now. And if we don't find the courage to push back on this, uh, it will be the beginning of the end.
I recently had the difficult task of publishing a article about Miss Intercontinental New Zealand. And Miss Intercontinental New Zealand is basically a beauty pageant for Miss, for females. And uh, the winner was decided to be a transgender woman. Uh, someone who used to be a man, was born a man, and then had an operation and uh, suffering gender dysphoria, uh, now identifies as a woman and, and entered this competition. Additionally, uh, he was born um, in, I think, the Philippines. Uh, but the, the dilemma was, how do we write the article? Uh, because the author, James McPherson, brilliant article, and, and James really uh, defended the truth and the reality of biological sex despite the silly word games that radical leftists play. Uh, but he still wanted to use preferred pronouns. Um, and we had a debate and he was prepared to pull the article if I wouldn't and I was almost prepared to not publish it if he, if he wouldn't flex it all. Uh, and you know, we both had, I think, two valid arguments. Uh, James was really concerned about not losing the argument, that, or, or losing, he didn't want readers to lose sight of the argument that he was making uh, with getting lost in seemingly deliberate and excessive, um, provocative, uh, you know, biological, not using preferred pronouns, uh, using biologically accurate pronouns. Um, and I understood that, but at the same time, I felt as the editor of The Good Source, we want to tell the truth. We want people to understand we're not fake news. We're all about the science and reality, facts, evidence, data, logic, and that preferred pronouns flies in the, in the face of that objective. Um, and we ended up, for those of you who saw the article, we ended up deciding to use, respect the author's wishes, but use scare quotes around the uh, preferred pronouns, those that weren't um, actually reflective of biological reality. So I want to bring that to the panel now and let's have a, a chat about it. Uh, again, James, uh, I don't want to rag out on him, but he's welcoming, of course, of us having this debate as a, a panel. And, and we, we spoke about it as a, as a team, the different contributors and, and how we should do that and what our standards should be. And the consensus was to uh, essentially respect the author's wishes and, and maybe just have a little editor's comment at the beginning um, that we were doing that deliberately um, and not suggesting that those preferred pronouns were reality. Senator, can I start with you? Um, there's a bit of wisdom that's required here to find the right balance between compassion for people that are made in God's image and equally deserving of dignity and, and respect when we speak both to them and about them, um, but we also have a commitment to uncompromising truth in politics and the media. Um, how do you wrestle with those discussions, and maybe in our situation specifically, do you think we should use preferred pronouns with or without square scare quotes, or stick to the biological reality? Yeah, it, it is... Um it is a, a tricky issue, that one. And, and I, I guess I come at it from a position that if, you know, if, if you want to be referred to a certain way and you request that of someone and, you know, then then, then that other person is, you know, w within the realms of um, 
social politeness, I think, obliged to refer to you as you would like to be uh, referred to. I mean, I, I wouldn't for um, the slightest moment try and, and draw a parallel here, but um, I'm, you know, 30 years old and sometimes when people refer to me as Senator, I'm not entirely sure who they're talking about, but, I'm, you know, I'm much happier for people to call me Claire, not that I'm saying that um, that, that is the same, but, you, you know, you ask um, people to, how you would like to be referred to. But what I don't really uh, enjoy seeing now is this uh, proliferation of people on Twitter or on LinkedIn or in their email signatures specifying whether they are a, um, a, a she, her or a him, he or, or them, they or whatever it um, is that they may want to be referred to because that. I mean, that's effectively compelled language if we're living in a world where okay. everyone feels um, that there is an obligation upon them to explain to someone what their what their gender identity is. And, at, you know, at the end of the day, um, on that basis, if someone said to me, oh, what pronoun would you like me to refer to you as? I mean, I'd almost be offended that they didn't automatically assume I was female just based Correct. on the look of me. So so I think if someone proactively um, says that they would like to be referred to a certain way, then that's, you know, I, I will accept that because it is the polite and kind thing to do. But, yeah, it, it's where the language becomes compelled or where people feel that there is an obligation upon them by their employer or by social media that I, I think it starts to get a little bit murky. Yeah, it's a, it's um. I, I agree with you, Senator. I think um, politeness and consideration in human interactions is really important. I often think of um, Catherine McGregor, who I think is a brilliant public commentator and a, an amazing writer. Um, now, you know, Catherine um, is probably Australia's most public um, person who has undergone uh, a gender transition, and I think out of respect, I would, I would. Um, you know, call her by female pronouns if uh, I was having an interaction with her. But I would want to reserve the right if there was a public debate with her over these issues to be able to refer to biological reality. And you, you do that carefully and sensitively. In, in the article that I wrote on my blog uh, last January where I talked about um, a, a woman who was identifying as a man in front of children as a role model while reading to children, I was very clear and deliberate in, in wanting to say what, what that was because I think parents would want to know um, the, the sort of example and I guess indoctrination that's being presented to their children. So I think we've got to be free to have public debate, uh, but also I guess balance it up with kindness in our personal interactions. We've got a comment here from yeah. Una Persona, <laughs> not using a real name or photo. Uh, saying that the headline I chose was foreign dude crowned Miss New Zealand. Uh, not particularly polite in one person's opinion. Um, well, actually, I uh, probably was going to go with foreign bloke to start with, but we also I talked about it with James, with the author, and, and we essentially debated um, and could have used man or male or biological male and settled on dude as uh, a little... I mean, the, the point of the story certainly was that reality was being denied. Uh, and so the headline was intended to reflect that reality, which was dissonant um, and 
telling people that their reality perception is dissonant. I don't know that there's an exception in a polite way. Interested in everybody's opinions. Uh, I only claim to be human and uh, happy to do better each time. Joan White says, uh, well said, Lyle. I'm going to come to Bernard in... Actually, we'll come to Bernard now, and after that, we're going to uh, come back to some of the questions that viewers have asked. Don't forget to leave your questions in the comment section. We'd love to know what you're thinking. Share that with people, as long as it's sincere and civil. Uh, we don't want to get invite trouble um, from the lawfare litigious left. Um, and don't forget that if you are watching this, then that's thanks to the Good Source supporters. Good Source supporters. Uh, put the hand in their pocket and come up with five, ten, or twenty dollars every month voluntarily. Everything's free, but they want to make sure that it stays free and stays keep coming. And we've got Bernard Gaynor and uh, Pillow Talk Live on Tuesday nights and Lyle's show most Wednesdays, although a bit of a break tomorrow. Uh, and there's more coming. Uh, there's new shows being added over the Christmas break while some others are taking a break. And um, we want to keep bringing you the good source news that's true opinions that are honest uh, and well argued without just simply being um, mean or bombastic uh, we want to be the alternative we want to be the acoustic treatment to the echo chamber which is the lying harlot formerly known as mainstream media uh, and um, the american election changed all of that they're not even deserving of the credit of being prejudiced or biased anymore they're just lying sellouts uh, with no fidelity um, or relationship with truth whatsoever. You're off track here, Dave. But <laughs> off track. The good source is um, what we want to be the alternative to all of those bad, bad options. If you'd like to become a supporter, head to the website goodsource.news and uh, just click on the donate buttons and make sure you check out all the shows and articles. Bernard... What do you think about the editorial discretion or use of, of personal pronouns in which preferred pronouns, in which uh, contexts is it justified, if ever? Well, Dave, I have been holding myself back, trying not to jump out of my seat on this topic because I think this whole debate, and I've got to disagree with uh, Claire, and I've got to disagree with Lyle, but the very fact that we're having a debate about whether we should use the correct pronouns for a person is symbolic of the reason why conservatives lose these battles over and over and over again. And I will make this prediction. We will never, ever win the battle on transgender men in women's sport if we decide that we have to be polite and refer to them as women. The moment we refer to them as women, we have lost the debate. And the fact is, they aren't women. The very fact we use the word transgender woman highlights that they're not a woman. Now, the, the word he or she means something. He refers to a man, she refers to a woman. And as much as, again, it's called the preferred pronoun because it's not the real pronoun. Uh, and I don't think we can ever lose sight of that. And the moment we decide not to speak the truth, we tie our hands behind our backs legally, so, so Bernard, if, if, socially, if Catherine McGregor was here tonight, if Catherine McGregor was Catherine here tonight, McGregor would you refer to man. Catherine as, as Malcolm or as Catherine? 
I will refer to Catherine McGregor as a man because Catherine McGregor is a man. There's no doubt about that. But what would you call Catherine call Malcolm or would you call Catherine Catherine? Catherine can call himself whatever he wants, but he is a man and there is no getting around that. And it is this whole topic of politeness. Where is the consideration on the politeness or respect shown to people like you, me, Claire, everybody else to lie in our pronouns. There's no requests of or respect there. They're asking us to lie, to lie. Now you can, people can, a name is not the same thing as biological gender reality. People can change their name, um, but they are still a man or a woman. That's the reality. And the moment we decide that we're not going to use the real pronoun in order to be polite, we're going to lose the fight socially, politically, legally, every other way. And eventually we're going to be saying, oh, well, we lost that battle as well. Now let's have the fight on, you know, kindergarten kids being taught preferred pronouns. Well, and then we're going to lose that fight too. Oh, we've got to start talking the truth. Uh, well, it, it, with the silence of Dave's looking at me. <laughs> I'm waiting. Um, you, you thought you had something to say. I'm just I, being I, I, I do. I'm, <laughs> I'm wanting to be um, considerate of other panellists, especially our senator. Well, let me but, ask um, you, what do you think the relevance of well, I, changing I, the name is? Because that's not a biological reality. That's a... No, and I think that's it. I, I take Bernard's point. I think it's easier to call someone who's changed their name. But, but in essence, if you take the logic of what Bernard's saying, then you are going along with something which is a lie. I suppose the point I was making, and uh, I think the senator was making, is we want to be well, polite. I, I disagree with that. But um, If you change your name, you've changed your name. Plenty of people change Well, it's names. still a female name, though. But um, So you're still going along yeah. with it. But, but to, to Bernard's point... Johnny Cash has um, a great song about that. <laughs> a man named Sue. A boy uh, named Sue. Boy yeah. named Sue. But, but Bernard's quite right, because we are losing this, and I've just got legal documents in front of me and I'm breaking some news here on Pillow Talk Live tonight. Um, this is yet to be published, but um, on Friday I received my statement of complaint from the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal and um, Senator Chandler's gone through the legal process down in Tasmania, which went a step below. I've been through the process that she's gone through at the Human Rights Commission level, in her case, Equal Opportunities Tasmania. In her case, they backed down uh, because of the public uh, pressure. In my case, they haven't. Um, we failed to conciliate at the Human Rights Commission, so I'm at QCAT. And um, the orders that they're seeking against me in their statement of claim, pursuant to 200, uh, Section 209 of the Queensland Anti-Discrimination Act of 1991, is that um, they uh, want to fine me or, or cause me to pay each of the complainants $10,000 each. That's 20000 to each of the drag queens that's suing me for saying that they are dangerous role models to children, which they are. Did you um, say they personally are or drag queens generically? I, I said, uh, well, both, um, because if you put gender fluid role models in front of children, um, in my opinion, I think that's a dangerous role model. We have an epidemic of children presenting at uh, gender clinics right around the nation. Uh, going on it to, is epidemic. It's an epidemic. The numbers are an epidemic. There's in the hundreds uh, where we never used to see these sort of numbers at all. Children on puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, 
uh, in some rare cases having double mastectomies uh, as adolescents. This is very, very serious. And so I feel very strongly about it. Um, I have a lot of, as I said earlier, a lot of uh, very young nieces. But uh, not only do they want $10,000 each out of me under the Act uh, by law, they uh, want me to refrain from making, publishing or distributing any statements, information, suggestions or implications of the same or similar effect. Now this is commentary saying that biology is what it Forever is. Forever banned censorship. Forever banned censorship. So that's the orders they're seeking from me as of uh, last Friday. So I hear what Bernard's saying, if we if we keep pandering to this, we are going to lose and they're going to wave documents like this in front of us and, and a QCAT judge is going to make a decision on this sometime probably next year. But uh, I find all this quite chilling. Um, it's, it's worrying. I, I can't believe that in the nation that I grew up in that I'm even facing this. Uh, I can't believe that every politician in the country isn't jumping up and down exactly. about this. Um, I spent 10 years at ACL warning that this was going to happen. No one would believe us. They didn't believe us when the Marriage Act changed. And even, as I said earlier, some of the coalition voted against the free speech amendments, which would have stopped this sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and now we're dealing with it. And um, I feel very grieved about that, <laughs> as you can probably tell. Um, and uh, I'm worried for the future of my country, um, uh, as well as my own personal future. Well, and can I, just, can I just jump in there as well? I mean, obviously the fact that um, there has been a, a monetary penalty attached to the complaint against you, Lyle, is is just crazy. But You know, the money the, doesn't worry the, me. So, well, I mean, it does worry absolutely. me. What worries it, me well, is that they want me to shut up. They want to censor exactly, me forever. Exactly. And the, um, the, the same was the case in um, with, with the complaint against me in the original uh, document that the complainant filed with the Anti-Discrimination Commissioner. He requested that I make a public apology for my comments and that I never say what I said again, in effect. Um, and, and this is what I mean about about shutting down debate. And it's one person, for, it's one thing rather for one person to go to the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Commissioner and say, I don't like what Senator Chandler said and I never want her to say it again. But I think it's another thing completely for these these bureaucratic semi-judicial institutions to accept the complaint mm. and decide mm. to actually investigate it. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the case is in Queensland, but in Tasmania, the Anti-Discrimination Commissioner has the power to dismiss a complaint as vexatious if she, it, or he, if it's a he at the time, but at the moment it's a she, if she thinks um, that, that there's nothing to it. And I just think in a situation where a complaint's been made of, I don't like what you said, I don't think you should say it again. I mean, isn't that the definition of vexatious? If if this complainant yeah. wanted to have a conversation with me about my views, um, I'm a public figure, my public email address and my public phone number are available to him, um, you know, pick, pick up the phone and, and make a meeting. But that's not what these people want. They want to shut down debate. Correct. Hey, can I jump in here on, on this, please? Because... I think Claire makes a great point. Claire, I don't know how much you know about my history with the New South Wales Anti-Discrimination Board. I have faced 37 complaints from a bloke who says it is his job to lodge complaints. That's what he does for a living. He has stated publicly he is lodging complaints to bankrupt me. It's cost me about 500 grand in legal fees, well, not just on this issue, but in relation to... LGBT complaints since 20, 
2013. The Anti-Discrimination Board of New South Wales has got that evidence where he said he's lodging complaints to bankrupt me. They have never, ever even looked at it. Instead, when they refer the matters to the tribunal in New South Wales, I don't even live in New South Wales, by the way, when, when they refer the matter to the New South Wales Tribunal, they remove all the evidence of his emails where he states he's lodging complaints to bankrupt me or harass me or where he got my address from the electoral roll and started sending it to third parties in order to have them harass me. They don't look at any of that stuff. And they are completely biased. And I was going to ask you earlier whether you ever felt like you were going to get a fair hearing in, in Tasmania. Uh, and also... So I might be hogging, but I would like to ask you, you, you talk about, um, I, I do, I want to ask this question, you, th this question of, of sport. Now, we talk about fairness, but competitive sport is about winning. There's no doubt about that. And in female competitive sport, it's about winning. They want to win. And I understand that. I think that's a good thing. That's why people watch it. Um, how many of the uh, professional female athletes have spoken to you privately, and would it help the case if more of them were willing to come out publicly and express their concerns? Sorry, I was just writing down the, the, the first question that you yeah. um, it was asked. It's about whether you felt like oh. we could get a fair hearing no, in Tasmania. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, certainly in a situation where um, I'd been denied the right to have a lawyer present, um, for the conciliation hearing, I was I was starting to um, get you know understandably a, a little bit nervous about that and a little bit nervous about what conciliation would hold for me in that regard. I must say the public opinion uh, on the uh, on the complaint that was made against me was overwhelmingly positive. Um, once it hit the media down in Tassie and um, we, we had a bit of coverage in the Australian newspaper as well, um, it certainly seemed that overwhelmingly people were on my side. So while I wasn't sure what kind of a hearing I was going to get at Equal Opportunity Tasmania, uh, I was very confident that uh, the the people of Tasmania were were on my side, which did um, buoy me somewhat. But uh, I mean, I was prepared to take this complaint all the way that it would need to go. Um, but for, of course, the fact that it was withdrawn and it didn't quite get to that. So um, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I will never know whether or not I would have uh, received a fair trial. But in the court of public opinion, I, I think I had the upper hand uh, on the issue of professional athletes. Um, in particular, reaching out to me. Um, I mean, we know that some professional athletes in Australia have gone on the record to uh, voice their concerns about um, the inclusion of transgender people in women's sport. Tamsin Lewis is one um, who has spoken out uh, in recent months and Jane Fleming as well. Um, a number have contacted me uh, privately and I've had conversations with them on the basis that, um, you know, that... that it wasn't going to be divulged who they were or what sport they played in. And, and this is, um, you know, obviously an issue that is impacting uh, athletes at the professional level, but it's also an issue that's impacting at the community level as well. I, I do think that um, if more athletes are willing to speak about this, then the issue will gain even more traction than it already has. And if people at the community level are impacted uh, continue to be impacted by this and speak out then then it will gain traction as well but 
at the same time, uh, I can understand why a lot of these women, whether they're the professional athletes I've spoken with, whether they're the community athletes I've spoken with, are looking at what happened to me and now, um, you know, they, they had reservations going public before, but they certainly have reservations now. So, so it's a difficult debate to have when the, the women who are in the sporting field professionally or in the community level who agree with you feel like they, they can't speak up, otherwise they might be dragged to an anti-discrimination commission. Uh, drag to an anti or they might lose their jobs or their sponsorship. Yes, yep. yep. That, that's what I was about to say. It's not just the threat of being yep. dragged through an anti-discrimination commission. It is what uh, disciplinary action might be taken against you by your sporting code or um, by mm. your your local club or, or whatever. Yep. Senator, what what one of the things that I, that have really surprised well it didn't surprise me about this, but when I found myself in legal hot water and maybe you did similar research but I looked at the lawyers who were preparing the briefs and preparing documents like this um, against me and um, the, the two drag queens that are suing me have, uh, have representation from the LGBT legal service here in Queensland. Their annual report shows that that organisation received $400,000 of taxpayers money over the last three financial years. So, so not only do we have laws which are, are anti-free speech, but they're weaponized against uh, public commentary and the taxpayer pays for the weaponization of these laws. And um, we really need some serious law reform uh, so that freedom of speech can be restored in this country. People might want to disagree with what I've said or with your point of view or with Bernard's, but I didn't think growing up in Toowoomba in Queensland that free speech would ever be an issue in my lifetime. And uh, I just can't believe the situation that we're in. I saw it coming over the last 10 years. I did my bit, my tour of duty in Canberra. We engaged legal academics. We tried to alert politicians. We tried to alert church leaders. Um, very few people would listen. Um, but surely now we've got to get to the stage where we see some change in this nation. And surely we find what Solzhenitsyn was begging the West to find back in 78, and that is some courage um, to stand up for the things that we believe in, the things that our society was founded on, freedom of speech, a basic freedom, basic human right, which has now been trumped by this extreme individualism that we've uh, somehow found ourselves embroiled in. I think one of the issues that we have with, um, with courage, though, Lyle, is that um, it is so easy to get shouted down or cancelled when you're operating via a keyboard and a computer screen. And that's what we see on social media. I, I really worry that uh, particularly the, the generation um, like mine that's grown up with social media will struggle to find that courage because, um, you know, if you put your opinion out online, then you are very... Uh, quickly shouted down by by the vocal left. So we need to learn how to uh, argue and debate constructively and better than than just you know typing a comment on Facebook and hitting enter and then um, you know thinking that that's the be all and the end all of, of public opinion on the matter. I, I think that um, I, I think that social media has a lot to answer for for the um, degeneration of of public debate in this country as well. But 
that's something in, entirely apart from the issues that we're yeah. discussing here tonight. No, there's, there's no doubt about that. But the scary thing is, as Bernie's discovered, as you've discovered, as, as I'm discovering, is that cancel culture has moved beyond the keyboard warriors to taxpayer-funded legal advocates who can not just cancel you with a Facebook post or, or a tweet, they can cancel you with um, an action before a, a, a tribunal and, and fine you yeah. and force you to apologise and force you to never say these things again in Australia. And what we've got right now is the case where if you cooperate with this, uh, you, I could make this you go have away. to pay $20,000 $20, and promise to never speak about an issue of significant yep. public importance of, of risk to and jeopardy risk to, to children, children and innocent people. Uh, a important public issue, you are shut down, you're excluded from the debate ever, ever again. It's, it's way beyond keyboard warriors. And what we have is a shift of what's called the Overton window, where politicians and media have basically either cooperated or surrendered that the conversation has to shift further and further to the left until traditional family values are considered radical, offensive, yeah. and it becomes illegal and punishable to espouse traditional yeah. family values and criticise yeah. the opposite. And, and Senator, that's why um, your stand, and I, I had no, I've been gone from Canberra for three years. Um, I didn't know about you until you took your stance, but I can't say. Uh, how much that reverberated and how much hope that gave people like me who are now private citizens again, uh, that um, someone was willing to stand up against this. So um, I think the more of this, the more it will resonate with people out there who know in their guts that something terrible is going on in this nation when it comes to these basic freedoms that we once used to all take for granted. So, so thank you. Uh <laughs> No, that, that very kind words, um, Lyle. And, and look, that's why I said right from the get-go when this complaint landed on my desk that it wasn't going to silence me and that I was going to keep fighting because, um, yeah, like you say, this, this lawfare has just gone too far and people need to know that there are sensible voices out there, there are courageous voices out there that are willing to speak up and, and, and fight for these values and have the debate. Mm. Yep. Uh, and can I jump in there too, Dave, quickly? Claire, I'll, I'd like to say exactly this, or echo what Lyle said. When, when I saw your stance in the media, I, I was extremely encouraged. Um, and I can only say, well done, and please keep it up. We need more people like you in Parliament. Thank you, Bernard. Well, Lyle, you certainly won't be on your own. Um, you very much are we can't take any of the stress or anything off you or your family but we can pledge absolutely we're here as much as we can as much as i can uh, mm. my voice will be lent to call for people to um support you no, as necessary. do you need extra donations immediately no we don't and and thank you Dave. you know that means a lot and our friendship and the fact that you've used the good source and pillow talk to help highlight my case um my friendship with bernie over the last uh, two or three years and you've been through this as well mm. uh, so i do feel very well supported um and I, I appreciate again being able to air these things to our audience tonight because i think the more that we talk about this the more ridiculous it becomes to the average person. So I think it's been a helpful discussion. I'm very fortunate to 
uh, have uh, what we need to fight the first tranche of this battle. If it ends up going beyond QCAT, um, we'll wait and see. But so to be clear, yeah. you have zero intentions of cooperating with this? I am not going to pay $20,000 to the drag queens. And will I, you be silent? I will not be apologising. I will not be uh, taking things off my blog. And I will not refrain from commenting uh, about... Uh, women's human rights and the rights of children to be protected from harmful inf influences. Um, I will not stop. Um, and, and, you know, Claire gives me a, a lot of hope because of the courage of her stand. And I think the more people who can push back on this radical political agenda, and it's not about people. I love all people. I don't have yeah, any exactly. animus towards any individuals at all. And, and that's the thing that grieved me about the whole gay marriage debate, because you had a difference of opinion on public policy, you were seen as a hater, a bigot, we were called that. Um, that's not where I'm coming from. It's a disagreement over public policy and what's appropriate for children. And uh, we should be allowed to have those disagreements in Australia without being cancelled. So um, I'm, I'm grateful for all the support out there for your support and the Good Source community support. So we well, fight on. Words are cheap and easy. Can I encourage viewers Contact your local MP, contact your state senator, and ask them to talk about Bernie's case and Lyle's case and get the information from their respective blogs. Uh, there's heaps of information mm. about Claire's battle as well. Sorry, Senator Chandler. Sorry, Claire. Um, and <laughs> it's important that we ask our politicians... Uh, to speak up on our behalf because they do have the protection of parliamentary privilege to describe the horror and the abuse of our legal system when well-meaning, nice and polite, sincere citizens try and prosecute a reasonable political argument uh, and they get shut down, censored and, and punished by a system. Uh, Senator Chandler, I'm quite sure that with or without the resolution that you got, even going as far as it did before the complaint was withdrawn, was punishing to some extent in itself. Absolutely. In that intervening uh, month or so between receiving the complaint and it being withdrawn, you, you do have uh, moments of self-doubt where you think, um, you know, it is my... Uh, current stress levels worth it um, for, the, for the issue that I'm advocating on and, and mm. during that period of time I was very well supported by um, colleagues and, and family and, and my staff in particular uh, in my office that you know I, I felt um, empowered to, to battle on but it is it's absolutely tough and it's not a situation I would wish on anyone. Absolutely well um, contact your MPs and ask them to speak up on on Lyle's behalf, on Bernard's behalf, uh, and, and anybody else you know of that's being targeted by LGBTIQAX plus activists who are seeking to weaponize a system that should be serving real victims, not imaginary victims who choose to be offended uh, because of a difference of opinion. Uh, and, and let's face it, a adult entertainment porn industry award category is not the kind of people who should be in their full regalia and costume and character be modelling early childhood literacy. It's just dissonant. The only possible agenda for having that would be to normalise abnormal behaviour. And that's why it's relegated to the Adult Entertainment Industry Awards. 
uh, and not the Emmys or some other mainstream thing. This is not appropriate children's entertainment. Not a circus clown, not Ronald McDonald. Adult entertainment. Uh, and have that in your adult licensed venues where it's age appropriate. The age appropriate entertainment is not a new concept. Uh, but here's the thing. As you're communicating to the politicians, the goal is to give them the courage and the confidence that there's a volume of support for their voice on this issue, that you won't leave them alone at the ballot box and on election day if they put their neck on the line and speak up for traditional family Australian values. Um, and that's super, super important. Claire, how willing would you to be, I'm going to put you on the spot here, if a person in Tasmania was dragged before the uh, anti-discrimination tribunal and uh, or, or whatever the Tasmanian name is for that particular kangaroo court um, how willing if they were you know in a similar context to yourself or Lyle just making a, a good faith argument um, politically to mention their case in in Parliament and, and give it some profile and attention would that be appropriate Oh, of course. I think if, if anyone's gone through a similar uh, situation for, for fighting for what I've been fighting for, then I would have no reservations in, in talking about it publicly. Indeed, right. we've seen um, a couple of instances of the, that happening in Tasmania historically. I, I should have said at the outset, I'm by no means the uh, first person to trip the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act, or I should say be accused of tripping the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act. Archbishop Julian Porteous is mm. one of our most notable examples um, of, um, and, and he got a lot further through um, the, the process than than I did. So this, I have not been the first and I will not be the last and I will um, certainly be happy to um, talk to, to anyone that might have had a similar experience in Tassie. Indeed, if any of them are listening tonight, they're more than welcome to contact me. Thank you very much. Now, I am just trying to find a question. We're out of time, uh, but I did offer people to ask you a question. So I want to find one and, um, and have a look at it. Uh, okay, TPN says, Claire, what do you think the media's role in these issues are? And do you think they can be changed to be more balanced? I think the media has a huge role to play, uh, particularly around the transgender debate, and I absolutely think that they can be more balanced. I mean, you look at the coverage that I received during the complaint that was made against me. Um, Bernard Lane in The Australian gave me an absolutely fantastic run, um, as did Matt Denham, the Tasmanian correspondent as well. Uh, I received a bit of coverage in the Mercury newspaper back in Tassie, which obviously had skin in the game because they'd printed the... Uh, offending op-ed and and I went on Sky News a couple of times and spoke about it there um, but there wasn't a lot of interest about the issue more broadly than that and I think the media has a massive role to play in trying to shine a light on these issues and listen to a more diverse set of voices as well so I would certainly like to see more media coverage of this issue and, and it's one of the reasons why I keep talking about it as much as I do because I think that if I keep talking about it, I will encourage others to talk about it. And if others talk about it, then perhaps some of our other um, media outlets in the country might consider covering it as well. Awesome. Good answer. Thank you very much.
Now we have uh, a good comment here I want to share. Three strong and courageous people tonight. You represent all of us. Thank you very much from VJE Matthew. Um, so it was a good panel tonight. Thank you very much to Lyle and Bernie and Senator Claire Chandler. Um, it was great having you on. Um, BernardGainer.com.au, LyleShelton.com.au. And uh, Claire, I'm taking a wild stab in the dark. ClaireChandler.com.au? SenatorChandler.com.au. <laughs> How inappropriate of me. <laughs> Senator Chandler. That's so fine. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for that. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week on Pello Talk Live. We have a uh, confirmed guest already, uh, Australia, Australia's favourite Labour voter, <laughs> except if you are a Labour voter, uh, Joe Hildebrand, uh, the lefty that the lefties love to hate. Uh, and so very welcome on the good source. So uh, don't miss Pello Talk Live next week. And don't forget there's plenty of great shows on the good source website. Any time that you can delay, uh, watch them on um, delayed stream. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you there. Sign up for the newsletters, become a, a weekly or monthly supporter and help us to fight fake news. Uh, we'll see you guys backstage after. Don't go away. But to those viewers right now, good night. If not now, then when will we see an answer of this faith? Oh, it's not enough to do nothing. It's time for us to do something. Na -na -na -na.